0: player one welcome to the gaming history club my name is gabby
1: hello and i'm jp happy valentine's day player one never mind if you're a single player or a dangerous duo we are going to celebrate valentine's day by giving you the history of co-op games so get ready sit back relax and let's go through the super exciting history of co-op games together
0: So, as usual, before we're delving into any history of co-op games, we need to actually understand, what is a co-op game?
1: What is a co-op game, Gabby? What is a co-op game? What sets it apart from other types of games that you can play with other people?
0: So, it's a specific type of multiplayer game. Usually two, but any amount of players, really, as long as it's more than one.
1: Yeah, traditionally it's two. It has to be at least two, right? At least two,
0: exactly. So they join forces, team up versus the computer to play the game. There is a unique sense of intimacy in co-op games because there is no competition between the players. The only competitor is the computer. So the experience of playing the video game can be equally shared amongst players. So you asked before, what's the defining characteristic of a co-op game, right? What set them apart from other multiplayer games is that the players do not compete. So the challenges the player face can only be overcome by working together, and we either lose together or win together. I mean, I should really say we either win together or lose together. I don't know why I even say we lose together first.
1: We are are really hammering home this fact, but it's true, this is... The defining thing that makes it different and uh it's also probably what we love the most about co-op games you know you can enjoy the the storytelling and um there's no sense of competition so there's there's no need to get um you know excited in that kind of way uh it's more like going on an adventure together in like a uh dungeons and dragons role-playing game you know where you got the dungeon master and you got your friends And you set out on this quest together, you get that vibe from it more than like a sprint, you know, against each other,
0: if that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. it's a team problem solving kind of spirit, basically.
1: Exactly. And that's where this really true intimacy comes from. And I think that's what makes co-op games very special, really.
0: Yeah, and elements of co-op games have been around since the very beginning of gaming, before any co-op games actually existed games such as Pong Doubles, for example, made by Atari in 73, in the game, two teams, each made up of two players, would play Pong against each other. So instead of two pedals and a ball, like classic Pong, there was four pedals and a ball. This could be the first time in gaming where two teams of two face off against each other. Yeah. Well, this is not actually in the true spirit of co-op, it's worth mentioning. Because this game may be the first video game that a non-technical slash computer audience could play team up in pairs and play a game.
1: Pong Doubles may have very well been the first time where we have two groups of players, you know, like group A and group B, rather than just player A and player B. So there's a little bit of that co-op thing, a little bit of an element there happening already where you are you know, um, as a a group of players, a team of players.
0: Yeah, a team of players. I think that's the keyword here. But while Pong might not actually be the first co-op games, what is actually the first co-op game?
1: Yeah, so the very, very first co-op game, true by its definition, and it fits all the criteria, even when we look at it nowadays, right? That will be a game made by Atari, released in 1978. It was an arcade game and it was called Firetruck. Firetruck is a black and white game. The foundation came from a game released by Atari in the previous year, which was called Superbug. And that was a driving game that scrolls into all directions, right? Mm-hmm. And then Firetruck was uh, kind of like a modification to this game. So players would work together to drive a firetruck through traffic as far as possible without crashing, while avoiding parked cars and oil slicks. So the front player controls the gas brakes and front steering of the firetruck while the standing player at the back steers and controls the sway of the back of the truck. The front player also has a horn and the back player a bell that served no purpose whatsoever in the game other than driving each other crazy, apparently. <laughs> so um, I love how that was always a part of co-op video gaming already too, driving each other crazy yeah. with little sound buttons that serve no rhyme or reason.
0: You have the gimmick there, basically. You know what? I was really looking to play Fire Truck when we visited the arcade last time but i couldn't find it is it not around anymore you think
1: ah who knows you know with arcade cabinets this old i mean 1978 yeah goodness it's it's hard enough trying to find like you know the golden age game sometimes you know like space invaders it's not exactly easy finding That's cabinets true. like that yeah? yeah um let's get back to Fire Truck. the programmer of Firetruck, Howard Delman, he said in an interview that the game grew out of a brainstorming session in which someone asked, why are there no two-player cooperative driving games? What a great question to ask, by the way. The reason, I guess, was that no one had been able to figure out what that would be. But someone realized that Firetrucks required two cooperating drivers, and the game was born. He continues on to say, I can't remember how it came to be that Firetruck was an extension of Superbug, but since it was, I was the logical person to implement it. There was one challenging aspect to Firetruck's development, and that was coming up with a way for one person to play it alone. I needed to create a computer intelligence, which Superbug didn't need, and it had to be able to drive either the front or the back. I did do it, but it took a lot of tweaking to get something that would feel okay without feeling over-controlling. The results were a single-player game based on Firetruck, and that game was called Smokey Joe. Howard Delman would continue to contribute to Atari's success, working on games such as Asteroids and Snake Pet.
0: Wow, so basically he managed to make Firetruck to be a single-player game too, which is called Smoky Joe.
1: Yeah, that's it. Absolutely, oh,
0: yeah. Oh, interesting. So
1: there was Superbook... Uh, Racing game where you drive in all directions. Mm-hmm. That's been modified to becoming a co op game uh, with a fire truck, which has then been modified again <laughs> in case you don't actually have a second player around.
0: <laughs> to be Smokey Joe. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. but that's inclusive. That's nice. But unfortunately, co op games for the arcade appeared to actually be non existent for another three years after Fire Truck. Luckily, in the early 80s, seemingly out of nowhere, many co op games start coming out. Starting with Wizard of War in 81, it's a shoot-em-up game you can easily imagine by thinking of Pac-Man, but instead of playing Pac-Man, you're a wizard shooting enemies, and Wizard of War featured a two-player co-op mode. Other famous examples from the golden age of the arcade would be Joust, Mario Brothers, and Ice Climbers. Co op games made sense financially from a business standpoint, too. Of course, there was a chance of making double the money at the same time. Yes. Because, of course, you're using one cabinet, two people can play, the money's double.
1: Because dollar signs come in pairs, don't they?
0: Oh, yes, of course.
1: Because when your eyes turn into dollar signs, you got two of them a pair right there. Ka ching, ka ching. Yeah. You know what I'm saying?
0: Especially if you have more than two players. Even better. Oh, yeah. I know. Such the game that I'm going to talk about next. Oh. A real innovator and a game changer to the arcade cop world came in 1985 Gauntlet, released by Atari. Gauntlet was the original four player arcade game, designed by Ed Locke, who also worked on Atari big hitters like Asteroids and Centipede. It is said that Ed's son kept begging him to make a D&D game, basically.
1: good son. I know. You you tell Ed what you want,
0: little fella. (laughs) Like,
1: you know, do us all a solid one here. Exactly.
0: And Gauntlet is a fantasy-themed hack-and-slash game and one of the first multiplayer dungeon-crawl arcade video games. The arcades in the US were starting to struggle in the early to mid-80s, and Atari looked for ways to increase revenue without increasing the price per play as players were hesitant to insert more than a quarter to play. Here is what we were talking about before. Atari figured out a way to make an extra earnings. Not only did they double the player capacity from 2 to 4, Atari pioneered the drop-in and drop-out style of joining and quitting the game.
1: It's crazy how some things you never even think of as being an invention. Um, You just kind of assume they've always been there. Another example is like uh, the pause button on a video game console. Oh yeah, I can I can just pause the game. I can just stop it right now. I can, you know, take the washing out, something like that. Or I can grab a beer from the fridge. I can k- take the dog for a walk. You think these ga- things have always been around? No, someone actually came and, you know, changed the entire gaming sphere with these little inventions.
0: No, that's very true. Um, we kind of take them for granted these days.
1: I don't even remember playing a game that didn't have this drop-in, drop-out style of, you know, uh, joining someone. Um, yeah, crazy. yeah, for
0: a multiplayer, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Especially in the arcade, so mm. uh, yeah, it's it's um, definitely something that existed since we were born, I guess, so that's how it is.
1: Thank you, Gauntlet.
0: Yeah, this was feared too risky a move at first, um, when the idea was proposed at Atari sure if four people would be happy to play together I mean would you really like the playmate that you have or you know they were worried about that at first but, but
1: yeah I can see why because it's cool if you have like you know yourself and three of friends and you want to play together but, that's true but what happens if you like just playing a game by yourself and two random stranger kids come along they're like two years older than you they're like so much taller. They come along and they say, oh, can we play some gauntlet with you, fella? You know, and, you know, how would that work? Hey, it's an
0: opportunity to make friends. But I do agree with you. Mm. It is actually quite difficult. We did play gauntlet. um, Basically, me, JP, and brothers, if you remember from our New Year's special episode. So we play gauntlet and we realize how much communication we actually need to make sure we're all going to the right direction.
1: Yeah. Things were happening, like, left, right, and center in this game. Like, it was crazy. You actually did need to talk and say, like, hey, let me pick this up. Can we walk in this direction? Um, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So
0: it can get pretty chaotic um, when you don't actually work together cooperatively. So there you go. Why well, it's called co-op game anyway. But, yeah, Ed told them to just get on with it. And good job, hit it because... There you go, we have Gauntlet, such a great game.
1: I found a cool bonus fact about Gauntlet, by the way. So it was common practice to test a new arcade game at select locations before wide release. The operator was given the cabinet for free, but in exchange they couldn't promote it as a precaution against competition. And they would share the coin drop numbers of it and all the other machines at the location so that Atari could then evaluate the new game's success against its current games. But when AdLock came by to check on Gauntlet during its field test, he found developers from Sega snapping photos of the cabinet. Oh no. Atari pulled it from that location and didn't work with the operator henceforth. A year after Gauntlet's release in 1985, Sega released a four-player arcade game called Quartet, although that was a side-scrolling game. So you can already see here the uh, corporate espionage of video game development. It's like a heist. Um, Exciting days in the video game industry back then. Let's see what else was happening. So we took a look at the arcades, right? What about home consoles, though? So in the very early days of home consoles, we would have had to wait a while for true co-op games to actually come around. So while the Magnavox Odyssey did come with two controllers, it was also, and I mean this in a very respectful way, primitive. It may be a video game console, strictly speaking, but practically, it was like controlling a square on a screen in a very limited way. Okay. Yes. Most home consoles at the very start of video games were, after all, just Pong clones. So while multiplayer was certainly not unheard of, there were a few examples of true co-op games here already. The earliest example of a game featuring co-op mechanics was the video card number 10 for the Fairchild Channel F released in 1977. Video card 10 came with maze and variations of the game Maze uh, called Jailbreak and Trailblazer. The game is simple. Each player has a square and needs to escape from a common enemy square in a maze-like setting. The players can choose to work together to escape or find their own way out independently. The different variations of the maze change how much of the level is visible on screen, so the the difference between maze, jailbreak, and trailblazer. So the way the um, the Fairchild Channel F games worked as you you actually got like one video cartridge and on that cartridge you'd get like two or three different games right mm-hmm. and in this instance it was like the same game but like slightly different variations of it yeah yeah um since this is the first time we talk about the Fairchild Channel F by the way can I just please sorry let's just very briefly give it some respect by sharing some super important innovations that the Fairchild Channel F which is Channel Fun brought okay. us yeah, As go a, for it. It's a really important contributor to video game history, and I'd really love to talk about this console, right? Um, it was released in November 1976 in North America, and it's the first video game console to be based on a microprocessor rather than transistor-to-transistor circuits that we used to have. So that is that is a big step for um, computing power in general, not just for video games. Um, that's something we'll touch on. Another time though to kind of explain what that actually means a little bit better. Um, Also it was the first to use interchangeable ROM cartridges meaning more games could be bought for the system after you bought the home console. Players didn't need to buy a whole new system again just to play some more games because let's remember the Magnavox Odyssey's cartridges they changed the console's circuitry inside. The game's Already lived inside of the console. The cartridges just changed the settings. The games were not inside of those cartridges, right? That's
0: true because it, technically, with Magnofox Odyssey, it's just changing the way the box, the pixel are showing on the screen yeah. and how it's programmed to interact with the com- with, with the controller. Not really different games. Yeah, yeah. Right? In a
1: very complex way, it goes back again to this whole, you know. TTL rather than microprocessor way of building it Mm -hmm. Um, the channel f also ushered in the second generation of video game consoles rendering what came before it obsolete and although it would be overshadowed by the massive success of the atari 2600 the channel f is the oldest home console that resembles a modern home console today. So while Magnavox Odyssey may be the first technical home video game console ever made, mm-hmm. um, probably the Fairchild Channel F deserves like extra mentioning in that space though, because it's just so much more like what we have today in compared to the Magnavox yeah. Odyssey.
0: Similarly to the games in the arcade, cop games for home consoles didn't really exist until The third generation of home consoles was released in the early to mid 80s or also known as the 8-bit generation, basically dominated by the NES and Sega Master System during that era.
1: Yes, Sega does what Nintendo don't.
0: God, one of the most classic video games pun.
1: Yeah, no friendo.
0: No friendo, yes. (laughs) We are so lame. (laughs) I'm sorry. But yeah, there are still very rare exceptions, like Breakout for the Atari 2600, released in 1978, allowing two players to work together to keep the same ball in play. Frustratingly, however, many of the games that were ported to home consoles from the more powerful arcade, such as Double Dragon, alternating play between Player 1 and 2, kind of replaced the co-op mode from the arcade. And many other games featuring two-player modes were competitive.
1: What a massive letdown, yeah? Especially comparing it to the arcade. You go into the arcade, you can have some fun together with your friend. You buy the thing for home and then all of a sudden, now you have to compete against your brother, Chad.
0: I know. That's a little bit sad because you just want to play together. And yeah, it's just not too available, isn't it?
1: I guess in the 80s, they were still very much learning about what people want from the video games, what they expect and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, I, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and it would be a few years until developers understood and familiarized themselves with how people really wanted to play games together and not always against each other. That's right. An outstanding title here is Contra, which allowed similar drop-in drop-out mechanics from the arcade. Revolutionary also was Secret of Mana for the SNES, released in 1993 by Square, known in Japan as Seiken Densetsu 2. This is basically a Final Fantasy spin-off. This game enabled players to drop in and drop out whenever a second player wanted in a real-time RPG game.
1: Yeah, I um, played that game, like, way, way, way after it came out, like, I got 10 years after it came out, and I realized this, and I was like, oh, I would have loved this if I had this back in the day. I Aww. was like, yeah, I saw the possibilities kind of like, uh, I just imagined, the, uh, you know, chances in my head, and I was like, oh, okay, it's a little too late, but I was still very impressed by that, actually.
0: Yeah, I've never played the game, actually, so... That will be interesting to revisit if you're interested. i
1: will always interested in revisiting things.
0: So that's that with home console. But now let's have a look at computer games. Here, as expected, we see very early implementation of co op games, too. In a place all too familiar by now, the universities and research labs of the United States of America. It always starts there somehow.
1: That's right, it's either America or Japan.
0: That's true. Before we normal people had computers at home, especially ones that came with a monitor or the internet for that matter, computer application concepts including games were already well underway taking shape. Let's talk a little bit about Plato again. Who's Plato?
1: Well, he was the student of Socrates, okay. uh, teacher of Aristotle, of course. Um, oh wait, no, you. All oh right, I s- no, you you mean the computer? Yes, right, that's right. True. Oh no, no, you mean the programmed logic for automatic teaching operations, Plato? Don't you?
0: Yeah, it's teaching as well, but not teaching Aristotle. This one, Season gaming historical player ones will already be familiar with Plato, actually, from our episode. When we looked at some of the first 3D games, shout out to SpaceM. Spasm. No, it's SpaceM. It's SpaceM. I know, we're still talking about this until now. Well, those games came just a year or two earlier on Play-Doh. They were multiplayer rather than co-op.
1: That's right, Mm -hmm. that's right.
0: Play-Doh also gave rise to many of the first RPGs and dungeon crawler games known as MUDs, Multi-User Dungeon.
1: Is it MUDs or is it MUDs? Like, I mean, I never no one ever came up to me on the streets talking to me about multi-user Muts. dungeons like, yeah that's yo, true yo you want some muds
0: actually that might be muds um mm. player ones out there let us know is it muds it I mean, MUDs?
1: like a general user interface i'll just go up to you like yo check out this gui you know i mean they, yeah, they're dancing gui yeah you're it's right. like "Yo, look this gui and it sounds funny af
0: Anyway, I wanted to spell it out, so I did spell it out. Okay. <laughs> it seems we must thank Dungeons & Dragons for bringing a lot of structure to video games, including co-op. That's probably something worth exploring in the future, right?
1: Yeah, I feel like this is going to um, yeah, uncover a whole lot of things if we just take a look at what Dungeons and Dragons & Dragons... How, how did it impact video games in general? Because there's so many concepts. There's so much um, inspiration that we take from yeah. Dungeons & Dragons gameplay, actually. Influenced yeah. by
0: Dungeons & Dragons. It's
1: crazy, yeah. yeah. Um, st- stylistically, gameplay-wise, uh, yeah.
0: Definitely excited to explore that one day for our future episodes.
1: Well, let's talk about what's likely also the first 3D RPG computer game, then Moria accessible only to those select few people that Lady Destiny chose to make computer game players back in 1975. You could actually join up to nine other players in a group here, cooperatively. Wow. Yeah. Moria was a first-person perspective RPG and featured traditional RPG elements, so we're talking skill points, job roles, food and water supplies, spells. The game looked on screen, uh, you would see two vertical boxes on the left and right side of the screen. And you'd see things such as your inventory, your stats, and the other group members. In the middle of the screen, you had a smaller, more horizontal box with a wireframe representation of the room that you're currently standing in. So um, very, very ahead of its time and uh, really trying to push the boundaries of what's actually possible here with computers. Very, very early already in 1975. Very ambitious, yeah. let me tell you. Yeah. Um, Maria allowed up to 10 players to travel as a group through 248 dynamically generated mazes. So again, it's not like they, you know, pre-made these levels. They just programmed them to be dynamically generated. Oh, wow. Different every time. Um, it also had gameplay elements such as building camps and leaving behind so-called strings to help you find your way back to certain locations. Uh, reminds me a little bit of Colossal Cave Adventure. Yeah,
0: yeah? that's true. Mm.
1: PC games would continue to feature co-op games, especially with breakthrough network games, so Doom from 1993, and then the following three super successful ID software games, Doom 2, Quake, Quake 2, they all featured co-op modes, extensions to the single player campaigns with tweaked difficulty. But co-op modes always seem to be neglected a little bit throughout gaming history as a whole. Many, many games that could reasonably have had co-op modes built in often just didn't. For PC games in the 2000s, it appeared that co-op modes were often neglected in first-person shooters the most. Instead of featuring two extremes, instead you'd have a single-player campaign and a full-on multiplayer. Mm. And not like a specific co-op as such. Um, Unreal Tournament, Doom 3, Quake 4... Half-Life 1 and 2 titles, these all came without built-in co-op modes, sadly.
0: Yeah, because it seems like you're always against other groups or other players instead of um, together beating the computer in that sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can sort of understand it if you think of it in terms of computer games, because obviously the, the chances is quite high that you are either alone or mm-hmm. you you are playing through a network either you know internet or like a lan like a local multiplayer yeah that's true right so uh co-op must have felt very niche for these people to build into their games um it's just a it's just really sad because again if it's quite reasonable to implement it quite easily you often look at it like oh it's such a shame because you don't think of it as taking long. i guess it's kind of like accessibility in video games where the guidelines will tell you, well, the easiest way to do it is if right at the start from your game design, you already have accessibility in mind. And then like the most basic options will be quite easy to implement. And I think maybe the same would be for co-op, where like if you don't think about building in a co-op uh, mode until <laughs> you've almost finished the game. Yeah. It's probably pretty difficult then, but if you always you know, have it in mind right at the start, it's probably kind of easy to, to implement, I guess. Yeah. I, I don't know, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here. Um, it is said that thanks to Gears of War's popularity, uh, Co-op had a small resurgence then um, with the very popular Gears of War third-person shooting, drop-in, drop-out style of gameplay again, of course, yeah.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's the interesting thing about co-op games, is the change in dynamic that co-op games have when the players are physically in the same place, like couch co-op, and playing co-op online. The internet has benefited co-op games by providing instant access to players ready to team up for an adventure. Split screen is no longer necessary, you can have your own screen, you know, your friend can have their own screen, and you can still play together cooperatively and that comes especially with the seventh generation of consoles from playstation 3
1: yeah, and xbox with the wi-fi generation of video game consoles
0: yes and modern games built purposefully for co-op like the way out it takes two left for dead often take place online now in many ways it's sadly easier um Because you don't need to line up your schedules, you don't need to share a screen, bringing a gamepad, never mind a memory card.
1: Oh yeah, that was a thing back then.
0: That's true. Or even a second console to hook it up together.
1: (laughs) Yeah, daisy chaining your console together.
0: Exactly. But there's definitely something very special about sharing the same space with someone and playing a game cooperatively, side by side. It seems that now, co-op is in the best place it has ever been, all things considered. While we still don't have co-op modes for all games that players feel like could've easily have won, um, the amount of choice and the fine-tuned development of games made specifically only to be played co-op are better than they have ever been before. Especially in the last 5-10 to years, we have seen games being released that were designed just to be played in co-op. And you know what, kudos to those developers for doing so, because it is certainly not an easy proposition to get financiers of games to be on board with it, right? Games like It Takes Two and The Way Out truly stand out here, and to celebrate Valentine's Day, we hope you have a special someone you can play those games with, invite the player to, to join your adventure with you, Or probably listen to us, either way.
1: please listen to us.
0: (laughs) Yes, please do. But if not, then perhaps it's time to play and get matched up in more co-op games. Get out there and play some video games. We found an amazing YouTube channel, Co-op Classics. Um, Link in the description.
1: Yes, fantastic YouTube channel all about co-op games. Very, very specifically about co-op games and great channel great videos have a look we hope you've enjoyed this episode player one as you me and gabby cooperatively dungeon crawled through the history of co-op games we thank you for avoiding friendly fire and sharing your experience points with us
0: yes we know we haven't actually delved into a lot of the modern co-op games but we hope you've enjoyed listening to the history of how co-op games came to be As usual, new episodes of Gaming History Club are released every second Wednesday, so make sure you subscribe and follow us on our social media, say hi to us by visiting our website, gaminghistory.club, and let us know what topics you'd like to hear, or simply share your favourite video game stories with us.
1: Come back in a couple of weeks, Player One, when we look at the rise and the fall of the most prolific gaming convention ever, E3. See ya.